public key encryption uses two keys, a public and private key. To illustrate, imagine that two people want to communicate with each other. In between them is a third party that is trying to eavesdrop on their conversation. With traditional encryption that uses the same key, the problem is getting the key to the second party without the third party obtaining the key. With public key encryption, the public key is required to encrypt traffic, however it does not need to be secured. If a third party were to obtain the public key, they would not be able to decrypt any data that was encrypted using it. In order to decrypt the data, you require the private key. The private key needs to be stored securely, but the advantage is the encryption can occur without the private key. This means the private key never needs to be transferred, and thus there is no chance that it can be intercepted by the third party. You may wonder exactly how a system like this can work. The mathematics behind it are complex and beyond the scope of this video, but I will give you a summary of how it works. When data is encrypted using the public key, it is done in a way where there is a large number of possible solutions available. In order to decrypt the data, you would need to test every single solution until you find the right one. Although possible, depending on how big the key is that is being used, the process could take a hundred years. If you have the private key, the private key adds enough information to the puzzle so that there is only one solution. It is kind of like having a prize behind a series of numbered doors. If you know which door the prize is behind, it is easy to find the prize. Without this information, you are forced to try every door or choose one at random. Peace be upon you. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that quick summary of uh, public key encryption. And the reason I bring it up is because God employs a similar methodology in preserving the Quran. We know for a fact that God tells us in the Quran that he's going to preserve uh, the, uh, the Quran, that no one's going to be able to uh, add to it or take away from it. And for years, people thought that this was done because, you know, if someone tries to change a letter or a word, they're going to be struck down by lightning. But that's simply not true. God employs a much more sophisticated uh, methodology through encryption. And in the case of the Quran, the public key for uh, validating and authenticating the Quran is the number 19. This number allows us to make sure that the message we receive is from the Creator and that nothing of it has been altered since the time of Prophet Muhammad, that it's the exact same message that was given to Prophet Muhammad that we have today. And God tells us in chapter 74, which is entitled The Hidden Secret, which, uh, side note, hidden secret is literally the definition of cryptography when you look at the etymology. And in chapter 74, God tells us that the uh, disbeliever, they're going to look at the Quran, and they're going to say that this is but clever magic, this is human-made. And that's uh, 74 starting from 18. And God is going to disprove them with the number 19. And in verse 31, it tells us why the number 19. It says, we appointed angels to be guardians of hell and we assigned their number 19. And it gives us five criteria. One, to disturb the disbelievers. Because the disbelievers, they're going to look at this Quran and they're going to be uh, deterred by it. Especially when you say that it's mathematically composed far beyond human capability. Number two is to convince the Christians and Jews that this is divine scripture. There's a misnomer among uh, you know most people that they think that the Quran is only for the Arabs, but they couldn't be further from the truth. The Christians and the Jews are addressed more frequently in the Quran than any other group. 
And this is supposed to be their uh, final testament, such that they have the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Quran supposed to be the final testament, uh, superseding uh, what they have and also confirming their scriptures. Uh, it continues, number three is to strengthen the faith of the faithful, meaning someone who already believes in the Quran now has further assurances, again, that every letter, every word, every uh, verse, every surah is the exact same as it was uh, at the time of Prophet Muhammad. And five, to expose those who harbor doubts in their hearts. And the disbelievers, they will say, what did God mean by this allegory? God thus sends astray whomever he wills and guides whomever he wills. None knows the soldiers of your Lord except he. This is a reminder for the people. Absolutely, I swear by the moon and the night as it passes and the morning as it shines. This is one of the great miracles, a warning to the human race. So God is telling us the number 19 is one of the great miracles. And it's going to dis, uh, disprove the uh, disbeliever who claims that the Quran is clever magic and human made. And what's fascinating is this number 19, it allows us to, again, authenticate that the sender of this message is the Lord of the universe and that every single letter we have in this text has not been changed. And this is the beauty of encryption, because if one bit, one letter, one verse was altered, it becomes easily detectable. And just to give you a summary of the mathematical structure of the Quran, uh, every aspect of the Quran is divisible by the number 19. For instance, the number of chapters in the Quran is 19 times 6, uh, which is 114. The number of uh, verses in the Quran is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 6,343 or so, and that number is a multiple of 19. Uh, the number of times that the expressions like key words in the Quran are mentioned in the Quran come out to be multiples of 19. For instance, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, in the name of God, most gracious, most merciful, this expression occurs 114 times in the Quran, despite chapter 9 not having that as the uh, the opening uh, 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 verse. And then in addition, each one of these words, so there's four Arabic words, so name, God, most gracious, most merciful, uh, occur in multiples of 19, such that the, the, the word name in the unnumbered and the numbered verses of the Quran occurs 19 times, Allah or God, with a capital G, occurs 2,698 times. Al-Rahman occurs 57 times, which is most gracious. And Al-Rahim, which is most merciful, occurs 114 times. In addition, if you add all the verses that these words occur in, that ends up being a multiple of 19. I don't remember for uh, all four of the words, but for Allah, if you add all the verses where the word Allah occurs, it's 118,123, and that's a multiple of 19. And these are just some simple facts. Anyone, anywhere can pick up a Quran, do these counts, and validate this for themselves. But in addition, what makes this truly profound is that the uh, Quran, there's 29 chapters that start with Quranic initials. Uh, there's about 14 different sets of uh, initials, and they constitute about 14 different letters. And Despite it being only 29 chapters, about little more than half the Quran uh, fall under this context because uh, the uh, Quran, not all the chapters are the same uh, length. So for instance, chapter 2, it starts with the initials Aleph Lam Mim in Arabic or ALM in English. And if you add all the Aleph, all the Lam, and all the Mim in the Arabic text, the total number you get is 9,899, which is a multiple of 19. And this Aleph Lam Mim, Aleph Lam Ra, occurs in about 13 chapters, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and each one of these ends up being multiples of 19. In addition, like chapter 42 and chapter 50 have the initial Qof or Q in English. And if you add all the uh, Qof in uh, Arabic, of these two chapters, 
respectively you get 57 in each chapter which is 19 times 3 and uh, despite chapter 42 being twice as long as uh, uh, chapter 50. Now this goes on and on and on but this is just kind of a quick summary of the mathematical miracle and what this does is if someone adds a word, a letter, or some sort of alter, uh, alteration to the text, it becomes easily recognizable. And this is the public key that anyone anywhere can validate the authenticity of the Quran. The question is, what is the private key? You know, how does the private key work? The private key in the case of the Quran is something far beyond anything a human being can do. And that has to do with sincerity. And what makes this so profound is typically when someone encrypts a message, what a adversary would get if they intercepted that message is gibberish. But in the case of the Quran, it's in plain text, meaning someone can still read the Quran, they can look at all the words, but they will not be able to understand one single verse if they are not sincere. In chapter 56, verse 75 through 78, it reads, I swear by the positions of the stars, this is an oath if you only knew that is awesome. This is an honorable Quran in a protected book None can grasp it except the sincere. So the way that God protected this book, that's the public key with the number 19. The way that God allows the, the individuals who deserve to have the message to understand what is the message that God bestows upon mankind is through sincerity. And that's the private key. And those who are sincere, they're going to be able to understand this Quran. They're going to recognize everything that it says, and it's going to make sense to them. And they're going to be able to apply it to their life. God tells us in uh, chapter 17 that the Quran will provide healing and mercy for those who believe. And at the same time, it's going to cause the wickedness to increase of those who disbelieve. And uh, I'm paraphrasing, but the whole concept is those who are sincere, God is going to open up their heart. And they're going to be allowed to uh, have access to the message and apply this and get healings and mercy from that. But at the same time, someone who's insincere, they have one of two possible outcomes. The first outcome is they flat out reject the Quran. They don't examine it. They don't read it. They don't uh, understand it. They just put it aside. And worse comes to worse, maybe they, uh, they argue against it. But the second outcome, which is more scary for someone who's insincere, is that they read the Quran and they think they accept it. And this is what God categorizes as the hypocrite. In chapter 2, God breaks down the three categories of people. Uh, the first category is the righteous. The second category is the disbeliever. And the third category is the hypocrite. And starting from chapter 2, verse 8, it reads, Then there are those who say we believe in God in the last day, while they are not believers. In trying to deceive God and those who believe, they only deceive themselves without perceiving. In their minds there is a disease. Consequently, God augments their disease. They have incurred a painful retribution for their lying. When they are told, do not commit evil, they say, but we are righteous. In fact, they are evildoers, but they do not perceive. When they are told, believe like the people who believe, they say, shall we believe like the fools who believed? In fact, it is they who are fools, but they do not know. When they meet the believers, they say, we believe. But when alone with their devils, they say, we are with you. We were only mocking. God mocks them and leads them on in their transgressions, blundering. It is they who bought the straying at the expense of guidance. Such trade never prospers, nor do they receive any guidance. And this is what it comes down to, is that if we lack sincerity, we're going to think we understand the Quran, but we're not. And if we lack sincerity, we think we're deceiving God by 
getting access to the Quran and we're only deceiving ourselves. In 1857, it says, Who are more evil than those who are reminded of their Lord's proofs then disregard them without realizing what they are doing? Consequently, we place shields on their hearts to prevent them from understanding it, the Quran, and deafness in their ears. Thus, no matter what you do to guide them, they can never be guided. In 35.8, it reads, Note those, uh, the one whose evil work is adorned in his eyes until he thinks it is righteous. God thus, God thus sends astray whoever wills to go astray, and he guides whoever wills to be guided. Therefore, do not grieve over them. God is fully aware of everything they do. And this is what makes it incredibly scary, is the fact that someone can think because they read the Quran, because they do their contact prayers, because they're doing the high-level actions of a believer that they assume that they're guided when they couldn't be further from the truth. And how do we know if we're being sincere? How do we tell that we're actually uh, following the right way? We're coming to the right understanding. And I want to go over some of these uh, rules of thumb that I've just uh, came across that I think it's incredibly important to make sure that we are sincere, that we're following the, uh, the, the, the right message. Because what fascinates me is two people can read the Quran and come up with vastly different understandings, reading the exact same verse. And it becomes incredibly obvious which one is right and which one is wrong for the most part. And the reason I say that is because when you look at most people and they interpret the Quran, if they're interpreting it in such a way that is going to just your moral compass is thrown off where you hear it and you say that can't possibly be right and uh, you know that there's something going on because god has provided us instinctive knowledge of who he is as lord and what is right and what is wrong and this is something that we naturally know now society is going to as we age and we mature is going to try to uh, dictate to us what is morally right but we know deep down what is right and what is wrong and when someone tells us that the Quran, you know, uh, advocates like bloodshed and uh, vice and all this kind of nasty behavior, we know that they're not following the Quran of God, that they lack sincerity. And um, one of the easy metrics that can be employed is that one of the names of the Quran is the book of law. And you cannot have a book of law where one law contradicts another law. And the same applies in the Quran. Meaning that if you come to an interpretation of some verse in the Quran and it contradicts numerous other verses in the Quran, it's not that there's a contradiction in the Quran, it's that your interpretation of the verse is wrong. God tells us in chapter 3, verse 7, it says, uh, pull it up really quick. 3, 7 reads, He sent down to you this scripture containing straightforward verses which constitute the essence of the scripture as well as multiple meaning or allegorical verses. Those who harbor doubts in their hearts will pursue the multiple meaning verses to create confusion and to extricate a certain meaning. None knows the true meaning thereof except God and those well-founded in knowledge. They say we believe in this. All of it comes from our Lord. Only those who possess intelligence will take heed. So God is telling us the essence of the Quran, the majority of it, is straightforward, easy to understand. And it's very easy, you think, when you read the Quran, how does God present himself to mankind? 114 times in the Quran, God says, in the name of God, most gracious, most merciful. Now, 
someone who is telling us he is the Lord of the universe and the word choice that he chooses to present himself is most gracious, most merciful. We have to ask when we read these verses of the Quran, are we looking at them through the eyes of someone who's most gracious, most merciful? And what's fascinating is, again, two people can read the same book and one person pulls a understanding that coincides with someone who's most gracious, most merciful, while someone else takes it and is the complete opposite. They're promoting violence and hatred and uh, uh, all kinds of uh, nasty behavior. And God warns us in chapter 83, verse 7, it says, Indeed, the book of the wicked is in Sejin. Do you know what Sejin is? A numerically structured book. And it continues in 83, 18, it says, Indeed, the book of the righteous will be in Eliin. Do you know what Eliin is? A numerically structured book. My takeaway from this is that Two people can have the same book, but one is going to lead people to righteousness. One is going to lead people uh, to uh, wickedness. And the choice is up to us. The Quran brings out our true convictions. It brings out what's in our heart. And you think about it in the sense that God has provided us such a powerful tool. It has all the laws, all the rules from our creator to how to obtain salvation. And someone can see this and see this as a huge blessing and someone else can see this as a way to extol power onto other people, to oppress other people, to have control over other people. And um, anytime when someone is providing a understanding of the Quran, it's just a simple mechanism that we can employ to say, does this coincide with the most gracious, most merciful or not? And God tells us that one of the criteria of the believers on the day of judgment when they're uh, uh, per, uh, permitted to go to uh, heaven in uh, 52.25 says, they will meet each other in remnants among themselves. They will say, we used to be kind and humble among our people. God has blessed us and has spared us the agony of ill winds. We used to implore him. He is most kind, most merciful. And this is the beauty of the Quran is that it's not meant for any one you know, ethnicity or group of people it's meant for those who are kind and humble, that anyone who has sincerity, who's a kind, compassionate person, when they read the message of the Quran, they're going to gravitate towards it. God says in the Quran, it's as if they recognize their own children. And anyone whose heart is full of hatred and um, uh, just, you know, is a uh, arrogant, egotistical, they're not going to be able to access any of it. And God tells us numerous times in 4523, he says, If you noted the one whose God is his ego, consequently God sends him astray despite his knowledge, seals his hearing in his mind, and places a veil on his eyes. Who then can guide him after such a decision by God? Would you not take heed? In 3178 says, Let not the disbelievers think that we lead them on for their own good. We only lead them on to confirm their sinfulness. They have incurred a humiliating retribution. And again, the purpose of this life, the purpose of this world is to bring out our true convictions. God is going to allow us to put us into situations where it's going to confirm either how righteous we are or how sinful we are or wherever we are in between. And that's the purpose of this life. And the irony is that someone who comes to the message, whose mind is already made up, that they're looking for evidence to confirm their pre-existing belief of being a nasty, vile person, uh, they're locked out. And in 2288, it reads, some would say our minds are made up. Instead, it is a curse from God as a consequence of their disbelief that keeps them from believing except for a few of them. 
And this is the design that God has uh, created for mankind, that whatever it is that we believe, most of us, we're going to look for information that confirms that belief. And when we do that, all we're doing is we're strengthening those neural connections and avoiding any information that contradicts our core belief. And the Quran warns us, it says, have you noted those who received a portion of the scripture and how they choose to stray and wish that you stray from the path? Meaning that there's going to be individuals, they're going to take one verse or one portion of a verse and try to twist that into an understanding to uh, validate some preconceptions that they have. And 378 says, among them are those who twist their tongues to imitate the scripture that you may think it is from the scripture when it is not from the scripture. And they claim that it is from God when it is not from God. Thus, they utter lies and attribute them to God knowingly. And this is one of the worst things a human being can do is to attribute lies to God. Because what you're doing is you're putting God's name as a seal on your statement. And if we unknowingly attribute lies to God, we can repent. But if we do this knowingly, the only one we're deceiving is ourselves. We're selling our uh, souls short. And this is what God warned us in chapter 2 when he told us about the uh, uh, the uh, criteria of a, a, a hypocrite. And God warns us that, you know, the thing is we want to be aware of obviously ourselves not being uh, becoming hypocritical, uh, hypocritical, yet alone associating with individuals who are going to lead us astray. And God tells us how we can identify this in chapter 47. It says that those who harbor doubts in their hearts think that God will not bring out their evil thoughts. If we will, we can expose them for you so you can recognize them just by looking at them. However, you can recognize them by the way they talk. God is fully aware of your uh, all your works. We will certainly put you to the test in order to distinguish those among you who strive and steadfastly persevere. We must expose your true qualities. And this aspect of being able to recognize them by the way they talk. And it's something that I think of the example of Joseph. You know, Joseph slipped up when he was in prison, when he uh, implored his cellmate to uh, uh, try to talk to uh, his uh, master to get him out of prison. And he forgot his Lord. And for that moment, he committed idol worship. It's not that he's an idol worshiper but that he fell into that trap and he paid the consequences for it. And there's times when we engage, when we talk, and we don't talk in the best possible manner. How many times in the Quran did God tell us that when the devil whispers to us that we seek refuge in God, and consistently it's after God tells us to return bad behavior with goodness, with kindness, to pardon the people, to be tolerant. And it's something that's incredibly hard. And this is when Satan gets us. It's when things get under our skin, when all of a sudden we're pushed, we feel like we're pushed into the corner and we're willing to compromise our moral integrity in order to momentarily get the upper hand. And this uh, coincides perfectly with the uh, the push, the Darren Brown uh, Netflix uh, show uh, that we did a podcast on and I highly recommend uh, to, uh, to check out if you guys haven't already. And um, I wanted to end with this example that if we read the Quran under the context that God is most gracious, most merciful, that the message put in there is for our own good, and we have to look it through the lens of the most gracious, the most merciful, and not through some dogmatic uh, preconceptions we have. Um, God warns us about those who follow the religion blindly, those who uh, follow the religion of their parents without any basis and don't study and examine for themselves. And the reality is if we 
read the Quran and we interpret it in such a way that goes against our moral compass, we have to reassess how we understand the verse. And I want to give an example from Solomon when he's corresponding with the Queen of Sheba and how he was able to portray certain words that the Queen of Sheba interpreted in a way that wasn't uh, uh, befitting and uh, ended up the joke was on her, but by God's leave, God saw sincerity and goodness in her and guided her. But uh, it starts in chapter 27, verse 20, when uh, Solomon is inspecting the birds and noted, why do I not see the hopu? Hopu is a kind of a bird. Why is he missing? I will punish him severely, sacrifice him, unless he gives me a good excuse. He did not wait for long. The hopu said, I have news that you do not have. I brought to you from Sheba some important information. I found the woman ruling them who is blessed with everything and possesses a tremendous palace. I found her and her people prostrating before the sun instead of God. The devil has adorned their works in their eyes and has repulsed them from the path. Consequently, they are not guided. They should have been prostrating before God, the one who manifests all the mysteries in the heavens and the earth, and the one who knows everything you conceal and everything you declare. God, there is no other God beside him, the Lord with the great dominion. Solomon said, We will see if you told the truth or if you are a liar. Take this letter from me, give it to them, then watch for their response. So the Queen of Sheba receives a letter and it continues in 27-29. She said, O oh my advisors, I have received an honorable letter. It is from Solomon and it is, in the name of God most gracious, most merciful, proclaiming, do not be arrogant, come to me as submitters. Now what's fascinating about this, I'm gonna, this is my own uh, thoughts, is that the letter, Solomon at this time is a uh, messenger, prophet of God, and he's providing a letter to the Queen of Sheba. And he starts it off in the name of God, most gracious, most merciful. And then the sentence says, do not be arrogant, come to me as submitters. Now, the Queen of Sheba can interpret this one of two ways. One way is that Solomon is asking the Queen of Sheba and her people to come and submit to Solomon. And that could be seen as a sign of aggression. The other way is the fact that Solomon is asking her to come and submit to the Lord of the universe. And it's up to her how she wants to interpret this message. It continues 2732. She said, Oh, my advisors, counsel me in this matter. I'm not deciding anything until you advise me. They said, We possess the power, we possess the fighting skills, and the ultimate command is in your hand. You decide what to do. She said, The kings corrupt any land they invade and subjugate its dignified people. This is what they usually do. I am sending a gift to them. Let us see what the messengers come back with. So what she's doing is she's not sure how to interpret this message. So she's sending a gift back to Solomon to see if she can get some more clarity. And it continues in verse 36 is when the Hopu returned to Solomon, he told him the news and he responded to Sheba's people. And this is what Solomon told him. He says, are you giving me money? What God has given me is far better than what he has given you. You are the ones who should rejoice in such gifts. To the Hopu, he said, go back to them and let them know. We will come to them with forces they cannot imagine. We will evict them, humiliated and debased. Now, if I was the Queen of Sheba and her people and I got this message, I would think, wow, this guy is a real aggressor. He's going to come at us with uh, forces we can't imagine and will evict us, humiliated and debased. And this seems like these are the words of war. And what's fascinating is Solomon 
has a history of being incredibly wise and very selective with how he chooses his words to instigate a certain response from people. And an example of this is in the Bible where uh, two women come to Solomon and one claims that the other one suffocated her baby and swapped it with her living baby. And um, Solomon's response was to cut the baby in half. And what happened is the, uh, the mom, who the real mom, said, just give the other uh, woman the baby. And the, uh, the, the fake mom was saying, yeah, cut it in half. And it became apparent who the real mother was. And this is some of the wisdom bestowed upon Solomon. And Solomon's doing something very interesting here too. He says, we will evict them humiliated and debased and come to them with forces they cannot imagine. And Sheba, the queen of Sheba, is thinking this means that they're going to go to war. And it continues in 38, Solomon said, O you elders, which of you can bring me her mansion before they arrive here as submitters? So he's asking the jinns, uh, because Solomon had the jinns work for him, that uh, when he asked for a kingship never attained by anyone else, that God even put the jinns at his service. And in 39 says, one afrit from the jinn said, I can bring it to you before you stand up. I am powerful enough to do this. The one who possessed knowledge from the book said, I can bring it to you in the blink of your eye. When he saw it settled in front of him, he said, this is the blessing from my Lord, whereby he tests me to show whether I am appreciative or unappreciative. Whoever is unappreciative for his own good, and if one turns unappreciative, then my Lord is in no need for him most honorable. So what did Solomon do here? He literally took her palace and debased it and brought it to uh, where Solomon was residing, knowing full well that the Queen of Sheba and her armies were on their way. So he already fulfilled part of this. And then he says in 41, remodel her mansion for her. Let us see if she will be guided or continue with the misguided. So he's doing her a favor, a gesture of good faith in remodeling her mansion beyond anything capable at that time. It says, when she arrived, she was asked, does your mansion look like this? She said, it seems that this is it. Solomon said, we knew beforehand what she was going to do, and we were already submitters. She had been diverted by worshiping idols instead of God. She belonged to disbelieving people. She was told, go inside the palace. When she saw its interior, she thought it was a pool of water. And she pulled up her dress, exposing her legs. He said, this interior is now paved with crystal. She said, my Lord, I have wronged my soul. I now submit with Solomon to God, Lord of the universe. So Solomon did exactly what he claimed he was going to do. He came at her with forces she could not imagine. Jinns that took her palace and in a blink of an eye, transported it to where Solomon was residing. And then had it remodeled. And as kind of a practical joke, when she arrived with her army ready for war, what she found there was a gift from Solomon to her, and it was her palace fully remodeled. And that is what turned her to becoming a submitter and submitting to the Lord of the universe. Now, what's fascinating about this is if you read these verses that Sol you know, this uh, message that Solomon sent to uh, Sheba in isolation, you would think that, wow. This guy sounds like a real tyrant. This guy sounds like a real aggressor. Not knowing the full motivation behind these words. And that's what it comes down to. Is God puts things in the Quran that the believers are going to read and it's going to grow their submission. It's going to provide healing and mercy for their heart. 
But at the same time, the disbeliever is going to read those verses and it's just going to draw them further and further away. They're going to interpret it in such an understanding that's tyrannical, that's aggressive, that has nothing to do with being the most gracious, most merciful. The message from the Lord of the universe. God willing, we're going to stop there. If you guys got comments, questions, hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com. I'm still uh, trolling around on uh, Twitter if you want to catch me there. It's Talk Quran. And until next time, peace and God bless.